I don't know. It was a crazy experience because it's something that, you know, our entire generation had never, like we weren't alive when Kennedy was shot. We weren't alive during these major, you know, flashbulb memories. And this is a moment that really defined our generation and something that we were old enough to understand that something was happening, like realizing that, that the world was not as safe as we thought it was. And up until then, we really did think it was, you know, we were coasting along, we were, we were fine. And then all of a sudden we had this unspeakable tragedy of, you know, people attacking on our soil, which, you know, had never happened prior to that. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Today marks 20 years since the September 11th attacks. This day is hard for so many, a reminder of the pain and chaos, the fear and uncertainty, and the realization that we as a nation changed forever that day. In thinking about how to cover something so life-altering yet so recent by history standards, I decided to blend oral history with my standard narrative format. I spoke with a few people about their experiences on September 11th and what impact it had on their lives. Those of us who are old enough know that there was a pre and post 9-11 America. So today, I will be sharing the events of that day and weaving into the narrative the thoughts and experiences of those who were willing to spend their time with me to share their memories. With the pandemic, these interviews were done via Zoom, and so the quality might dip a bit. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this together. It was a bright Tuesday morning in September along the eastern seaboard. A series of storms in New York on September 10th provided conditions referred to by pilots as severe clear, which meant visibility for miles. In New York, it was primary day, and voters were heading to the polls to determine who would be running for mayor in the elections in November. In Arlington, Virginia, men and women arrived to work at the Pentagon, the command center for the Department of Defense. There was nothing exceptional about the day. People went about their lives, going to work and school, running errands. But what no one could have known or prepared for was already in process. 19 Al-Qaeda operatives working on direction from Osama bin Laden had trained in aircraft piloting and boarded four flights. American Airlines Flight 11, United Airlines Flight 175, American Airlines Flight 77, and United Flight 93. At 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 out of Boston, originally destined for California, crashed into the upper level of One World Trade, otherwise known as the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The plane destroyed floors 93 through 99. All those on board the aircraft were killed. Anyone above the 91st floor was trapped as the crash severed all three emergency stairwells. 
So they thought it was like, oh, this is a terrible accident where this plane, you know, hit this building on accident. And it was just this horrible tragedy. And I called my mom and she was crying. And so then the next thing I know, I kind of had finished the call with her and I was still really stunned. And I just felt like almost like a deer in headlights, like what is going on? Word of the crash spread quickly and morning news shows trained their live feeds on the iconic Twin Towers. Many newscasters were scrambling, trying to remain calm and figure out how a plane had crashed on such a clear day. Originally, people thought it was a small Cessna, as no experienced pilot of a commercial airliner could have made such a grave error. As news anchors tried to gather information and emergency personnel convened to begin rescue operations, the unimaginable happened. At 9.03 a.m., United Flight 175 flew into the South Tower of the World Trade Center, demolishing floors 77 through 85. Again, all aboard the plane, including 51 passengers and nine crew, were killed instantly. In Florida, at an event to raise awareness about education, President Bush was participating in a reading event for schoolchildren. He was briefed twice, once after the first crash, when most assumed it was a tragic accident, and again, once the second plane hit. In one of the most infamous photos of the day, President Bush stayed stoic as an aide whispered in his ear the belief that the situation in New York was no longer an accident and that more sinister acts were at play. One thing that stuck with me was watching Bush and his reaction to the news because he was reading a book to some kindergartners or some really young kids. He just, like an aide walked in and whispered in his ear and he just kind of looked like, like I felt like, duh. Seemed like it sprung into action from there, you know, um, really kind of not getting a sense of what was, who was behind it, but um, it was just plaguing the airways. I mean, we were just in front of the TV all night. Um, And my dad called and said, you're not going to school today. And I said, what do you mean? Because I didn't understand what what was happening. And he said, you're not going to school today. Turn on the news. While the world watched in horror as the iconic towers in New York burned, a third plane, this time American Flight 77 out of Washington, D.C.'s Dulles International Airport, slammed into the Pentagon at 9.37 a.m. Any shred of hope about the crashes being accidental was immediately wiped away. The country came to a relative standstill. The FAA grounded all flights minutes after the crash at the Pentagon, and President Bush was loaded in Air Force One to an, at the time, undisclosed location. The last plane, United Flight 93 out of Newark, was delayed on the runway for about 40 minutes before finally taking off at 8.42 a.m. This delay enabled those on board to learn about the other hijackings as control towers were informing pilots to be aware of potential cockpit breaches. Unfortunately, the warning was not enough, and at 9.28 a.m., the pilots of United 93 broadcasted a mayday call. As the terrorists seized the cockpit and changed the flight path, passengers began making phone calls. In the 30 minutes between the distress call and the crash, 35 phone calls were made. Those on board reached out to loved ones, learning of the chaos already in play, while others tried to gain more information in order to formulate a response. From what's been pieced together through the cockpit voice recorder and various calls from those on board, 
the passengers of United 93 decided to overrun the aircraft and take over the plane or crash it trying. While details of what happened on the flight remain unknown, the passengers were at least partially successful in circumventing the original plot as United 93 crashed into an open field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 10.03 a.m. Four minutes prior to United 93's crash, the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed. In just 10 seconds, the building was destroyed, pancaking in on itself, killing 800 people instantly. You know, people that had cameras in the streets, and I remember seeing those videos of, you know, people running away as the towers were falling and all the dust was coming. And I just remember seeing, like, I don't even know where that video went because I've never seen it since those days. But I remember people hiding behind cars in in the streets trying to get away and like videos of people walking around completely covered in debris and dust and just not getting like being in complete shock, you know, and it wasn't something like they wouldn't show that now. It looked like a war zone. At 10.28 a.m., the North Tower collapsed, killing more than 1,600 people, including first responders who were working their way up the emergency stairwell in an attempt to provide rescue. Those who were in lower Manhattan as the towers collapsed reported experiencing a thick, fog-like dust as the various debris blanketed the tip of Manhattan. Unable to breathe, people reported having to scoop material out of their mouths to stop themselves from choking. By 11.02, New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani ordered the evacuation of Lower Manhattan. Back in Virginia, first responders worked to try to gain access to the E-ring of the Pentagon in an effort to rescue anyone trapped inside. However, at 10.15, the ring collapsed, putting any hopes for rescue in doubt. The country was stunned, many glued to their televisions trying to understand exactly what happened and who was responsible. On the West Coast, many were just waking up and beginning their day as they turned on the local news to find the chaos unfolding back east. One of the things I remember vividly was my mother running into my bedroom that morning, worried about members of our family who were either first responders or worked in or around the trade center. She was furiously dialing back east, trying to get a hold of family, having no luck as all the lines were busy. The news also played the same footage over and over, and I remember being unable to stop myself from watching. In preparation for this episode, I tried to rewatch some of the coverage from that day, and I could barely make it 30 minutes. I cannot imagine how the country stayed glued for days afterwards. The one thing everyone tried to determine was who was responsible. And while the nation would eventually become intimately familiar with the name Osama bin Laden, on September 11th, many were left guessing just who would do this. And a manager came down onto the uh, work floor, working downtown at the time, and she said, hey, we're, uh, we just got wind that the state building, you know, like two blocks away is closing. We, just for precautionary measures, we're allowing staff to go home just because they didn't know what was going to happen next because we heard about Pentagon by that point and other um, buildings back east so or the other tower. And so then I went home and just kind of watched it on repeat all day and feeling kind of, you know, that weird guilt thing that happens too because watching New York just, 
uh, was just devastating. I mean, it still makes me kind of choke up a little bit when you think about people running and the fear. Um, yeah, I think fear was the just the prominent emotion. President Bush, who had been flying around the country, avoiding Washington, D.C. due to security concerns, returned to the White House and addressed the nation at 8.30 that evening. In his remarks, President Bush promised the country those responsible would be brought to justice. By the time he addressed Congress on September 20, 2001, President Bush and his administration felt confident that Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were responsible for the attacks. Declaring war, Bush stated, quote, Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated, end quote. I think one of my most vivid memories was like September 12th. And I think one of the most amazing visual things that I ever saw was everyone had their American flags out. How impactful that was to drive down your street and all of your neighbors had an American flag out. And it was like, it was the most amazing kind of come together that I've ever seen in our country. And it just, it's sad to think about how we are now and very divided, but how we were one, we were one group, we we're one people. Like it just, it was all us together against whatever this, this thing was, because we didn't know what it was at the time. So I actually, you know, pretty, everybody got real patriotic too. I do. Do you recall that too? I mean, that it was kind of this rallying cry and you talk about the, the patriotism that happens, but the, the kind of the ugly underbelly of the patriotism started peeking its head out in a, a shop just down the way from uh, my work at the time was um, owned by a family from Jordan and they got vandalized and that was really tough. Um, and I believe racial slurs um, were yelled at him, people driving by and stuff. And so it was really hard to see people get so ugly. Yeah. And that, I mean, that I don't know. I can't think of timelines right now, but that seemed very quick. The attacks of September 11th forever altered the landscape of the United States and the naive sense of security Americans felt within our borders. In the aftermath of the attacks, the United States launched the longest war in its history, passed legislation that expanded its ability to monitor communications, and made terrorism part of the national dialogue. The attacks also left thousands without their father, their daughter, their spouse. First responders, who spent weeks in the debris of the World Trade Center, suffer from unimaginable chronic illnesses. Since September 11th, 10% of the Arlington County Fire Department resigned due to post-traumatic stress. More than 7,000 New York first responders were treated for 9-11-related injuries, with over 2,100 firefighters receiving service-connected disability due to their work at Ground Zero. I debated whether or not to get into the backstory of those responsible for the attacks, but I made an editorial decision to instead focus on those who were impacted that day and touch on some of the long-term effects experienced as a result. Anyone who is old enough can likely tell you exactly where they were and what they were doing when they found out about September 11th. It was truly a defining moment for a generation. Yeah, I cried a lot. Um, I was really afraid. Um, It's my first sense of privilege here, but as an American, feeling afraid 
I never geography wise always felt fairly safe. It's kind of harder to to get to us uh, without our uh, without us noticing, you know. So, so I think that it, it was a big growing up moment for our country and realizing that we weren't invincible anymore because that was kind of the view before that was that our country was invincible and you know we were the great great nation and the great experiment and all that stuff and it just wasn't I mean some of that is still true but it's not I think it woke us up a lot (laughs) this is definitely the defining flashbulb memory of our generation of just we have a before and after of you know when when we were you know young and naive prior to 9-11 and then it's like the before 9-11 and the after 9-11 and it's just you know what we all had to collectively deal with together and you know what I don't know like all of the changes that we went through as a generation um I mean there's a lot of stuff in our generation that kind of defines us but this was definitely the the first major thing that connected us as a as a group um and just like the collective trauma that we dealt with together. I would like to thank Kelly and Val, who spent time with me reliving that day and sharing their experiences. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.